1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of The Herald Times, along with Joe Wren today. And we are going to be talking with a couple of people about juvenile justice. Um, Joe's sitting in for Mary Catherine Carmichael, who couldn't be with us, so thanks for being here, Joe. Thank you. Uh, Joining us in the studio will be, or are, actually Bill Glick from the Indiana Juvenile Justice Task Force, Incorporated, and Monroe Circuit Court Judge Steve Galvin, who's back uh, for the second time in about a month, so we're happy to have Steve back today. Nice to be here. You can join us uh, on the program by calling 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address. You can go there to join the discussion today about juvenile justice. Well, thanks for being here. It's a, it's a, a big topic. I know we won't be able to cover it all in an hour, but it's a big and important topic. I, I wanted to, to start out by asking Judge Steve Galvin about, uh, you know, you've been, you've been involved with juvenile justice in one way or another through you know, the Chin's case of Child in Need of Services when you were with the county. And now, as a judge, I mean, wh- what are you seeing now in terms of juvenile justice? What are there are there things that you're seeing now that maybe you weren't seeing ten years ago, twelve years ago, fifteen years ago, or are, are the problems the same?
2: Well, let's differentiate between what we see locally and what we see statewide. Locally, if we go back, I think most of the lit- listeners may be familiar with Judge Viola Taliaferro, who was just. Uh, is one of the great jurists uh, from the state of Indiana who uh, dealt with juvenile cases for 16 years as the juvenile judge locally. And Viola always required that there be services for children. She pursued those services strongly, and um, she was committed to ensuring that children were dealt with humanely who entered the system. And I think we've carried that on here through Judge David Welch, who's also uh, set in this chair, and and I I hope I'm doing it to violent satisfaction, because if I'm not, she'll certainly let me know. (laughs) Um, We've been committed to that for many years. But statewide, um, dealing with children who are delinquents um, and referencing those specifically, uh, they've often been dealt with as if they were adults. Incarceration becomes the major mode of uh, problem solving. Um, we don't do that, and it's starting to change statewide. I think Bill's going to talk a little bit about how they're working to make that change. Um, but I do note that um, we are happy to see that change and gratified to see that change. Um, and that's the major difference.
1: Mm-hmm. I have just a very short anecdote about Judge Taliaferro. I was talking to her once about, you know, her sort of methods in court and she said well you know what one, one thing she always tried to do is once a, a young person came in front of her she wanted to be compassionate and all these things but she said most of all i wanted them to not want to be there again i just want to make sure they didn't want to see me again so she succeeded yeah, right. um bill sort of the same question it, it, what uh steve said is, it sounds like there's more interest in things other than incarceration around the state now I think that the behavior of the young people that we've seen over the—I've been with the task
3: force now about 13 years. I don't think we've seen significant differences in behavior um, among the young people that come in front of the courts uh, statewide. But we've seen um, trends in terms of how those young people are dealt with. Um, There has been, I would like to think— Uh, Great recognition that many of the young people that come before the juvenile court judges have a complex of problems that includes a possible history of abuse and neglect. You briefly mentioned uh, young people who are classified as CHINS or children in need of services. We see a great deal of overlap between young people who are in the CHINS court um, or in the CHINS side of the court when they're younger. Uh, we unfortunately see them coming to the delinquency side of the court when they're older. Um, and um, I think we have moved towards some reforms in Indiana, Greater recognition of their mental health needs, um, a greater uh, understanding of the fact that it's a complex issue. Um, however, there have been some um, unfortunate circumstances. On the other side, we say that... The um, Department of Correction is probably the biggest adolescent psychiatric uh, residential treatment program in the state. Unfortunately, we don't have a for adolescent forensic uh, services in Indiana. We have a limited number of beds at Larue Rue Carter Hospital, certainly not enough to uh, service all the need. Um, and uh, so we have had to... Um, in, uh, integrate more services in the detention centers and in the uh, state facilities um, in order to meet those the needs of those young people because they're not be, always being met in the community. And at the task force, our goal and our role is to increase the number of services available in the community and uh, do, as uh, Judge Talia Farrah would say, keep them from having to show up again. Mm -hmm. We'd like to divert them away from the system. Um, And I think that at the task force, we have a great deal of experience where the nation's longest-lived nonprofit that focuses just on kids in the juvenile justice system and their families. Mm -hmm. And that's the other issue, is an increasing recognition that we need to provide services to the family as the client rather than just isolating the youth.
2: Mm -hmm. I I also note we can sometimes, when we talk about services, people can get the idea that this is a touchy-feely thing, that we're not being uh, strict enough with the children. I want to make clear that we try to do and we focus on, in my court, what works. We want to keep them from coming back. We want to do that which keeps them from recidivating, we say. And if locking them all up worked, I'd lock them all up in in a minute, in an instant, but I've been, for 30 years, I've dealt with juvenile issues. I've been a defense attorney. Uh, I've been a prosecutor. I've been the DCS lawyer for 15 years. I've seen children who went into the Department of Corrections and came out far worse. A bigger problem from there for this community, a greater danger for the citizens of this community. So what I hope that people take from our discussion today is we're really not talking about something that's, quote, touchy-feely. We're talking about How to make this community safer and focusing on what works in doing that. Mm
4: -hmm. I've been wondering, listening to to both of you talk, what that process is or maybe something that you can kind of walk through, step through when a juvenile comes in after being in trouble. What happens?
3: Well, I can't speak for the court, but what happens is, well, of course, first the child is arrested, and then uh, referred to the county probation officer for their initial look at what is the situation, the circumstances, and then what we call a petition is filed, which um, results in the direction that the young person might go. Uh, The the probation officers do have a great deal of discretion in Indiana. They are the first screen, in a sense. They can elect if this is a first offender who may have committed a very uh, low-risk uh, crime delinquent act. By the way, we don't we don't call them crimes with, with young people or crime delinquent acts because we do – uh, make that distinction between juvenile and adult. Why, what's, it, what's the cutoff? Sixteen? In, it in depends on the. Uh, it actually depends 18, on the crime. Eighteen. It's eighteen okay. in Indiana uh, generally, yeah. but um, there are a number of ways that a prosecutor can file a young person um, directly into adult court for a mm-hmm. uh, particularly I mean, heinous or serious sure. or crime or uh, ask for what's called a waiver petition, which would uh, result in a young person uh, appearing before a judge um, for the purpose of waiving that young person to the adult criminal mm-hmm. court. Okay. So we make those distinctions, and then the ages there mm-hmm. uh, vary. It goes down to, actually, for murder in Indiana, it would be 10 years old, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But once the young person appears and has the interview with the probation officer, the probation officer can, yeah, again, have some wide latitude, can put that young person on informal uh, status, which means you better not get in trouble. Again, if I see you back in my office or I hear of anything's happening, then we're going to process the petition. Or can um, could, uh, ultimately refer that to the uh, juvenile court judge for um, the hearing. And then I'll let the Judge Galvin, talk about the series of hearings that has to take place in a statutory manner.
2: Okay. Well, when a, when a juvenile comes through, the first thing that happens is that the probation officer interviews the, the juvenile, and we attempt to make a risk assessment at that point. We use a risk assessment tool, and we have for years in this county, uh, just recently statewide uh, through uh, the efforts of the Indiana Supreme Court, among others, Uh, there has been instituted a risk assessment tool, and this is just a mechanism for asking some basic questions about each young person and being able to decide what their risk is to the community. Studies show that running low-risk individuals through the system makes them far more likely to recidivate rather than simply using informal mechanisms to, for want of a better word, scare them or to advise them uh, that they don't need to be here. Once it's determined that a petition should be filed, that is filed by the prosecuting attorney, and the child has due process rights. Uh, I would assign them an attorney if the child requests that, and in fact, in most cases that would be felonies, and quite honestly, also in misdemeanors and even truancy, um, we do assign public defenders if there is a request. Um, But I want to note there's a difference between the adult system and the juvenile system, and it's a very significant difference. They do not, children do not receive jury trials. And the reason they do not, the reason they they do not have that due process right is because the law, uh, it puts an affirmative duty on the state to act in their best interest, to, to, to try to help them, to try to reunify the family, to try to heal what's wrong within the family and uh, the problems that the child has. That's very significant uh, because sometimes we lose sight of that or can statewide, that the state has a duty to ensure that they're being helped. We have a trial. Uh, If it's necessary, the prosecutor puts on witnesses. The defense cross-examines those witnesses and puts on witnesses of their own. If I determine that a child is is a delinquent child, then we have a dispositional hearing. The difference between a criminal disposition a sentencing and my dispositional hearings is that I receive a report that outlines what steps we can utilize and what services we can utilize to help the family now i want to note that from time to time we do have individuals who are such a danger to the community or such a danger to themselves that they are placed ultimately after disposition at the department of corrections those are we per capita send very, very few, or probably the lowest committing county. But it does happen, and that's those are issues of public safety, and I believe if you look at our numbers, it's about two to three per year. But we try to tailor our services to the needs of the child. Sometimes uh, the needs are severe enough that they need to be placed outside the home in a treatment facility. If we have drug and alcohol issues, we attempt to address those. If we have mental health issues, which is very common. Uh, we also attempt to address those. We try to offer independent living skills. Many of these children have been on the street for years. Uh, if if not, uh, literally, they've been without per, appropriate parental supervision. So we come up with a plan that works for that child. And do we get it right every time, right off? I'll, I'm here to tell you, folks, we do not. But we keep trying. That's our job.
3: Another important distinction is that uh, young people are not eligible for bail or bond. If you're arrested as an adult, typically you can bail or bond out as long as the um, uh, crime is not so serious that you would be denied that opportunity, and uh, that means typically the young person is going home or going to some other uh, um, non-state or county placement. Um, I know know here in your county you've had an ongoing uh, situation where um, it was, do we or don't we build a detention center? And ultimately I think the decision was correct because you just don't have enough kids to support that, excuse me, enough young people who are adjudicated in that manner. Um, But detention is the first uh, option that a judge has to hold a young person um, outside of the community and detention is designed to be a short-term prior to the adjudication hearing. And so young people who are detained are detained um, in Indiana for one of several reasons. The judge mentioned uh, two of them. One, that they're uh, ultimately an de- immediate threat to themselves. They're, they may be an immediate threat to the community. They may, be, uh, they may ask for shelter. Um, and it may be the case that there's no one to receive them, that there's no parent or guardian available and no other alternative but to place that young person in detention. And as the judge said, um, and I do want to just make a side remark about Judge Galvin, not every juvenile court judge in Indiana has the same perspective that Judge Galvin does. Um, We often say that the severity of punishment or whether you wind up in detention or uh, ultimately in Division of Youth Services is uh, dependent on where you get arrested and and what judge uh, is in that county. And sometimes it's also dependent on whether we're close to uh, an election cycle. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, that's, that's pragmatically yeah. the, the, the way it works. Uh, but detention is designed as a short term hold, and there are only a few detention centers in Indiana which meet some more stringent criteria that allows a judge to place that youth in the center post adjudication for um, additional services. Mm-hmm. And when we say detention, we are talking about a locked facility. Um, They vary widely what they look like in Indiana, and the size of the detention centers varies from 144 beds in Marion County to uh, 10 beds um, in Lawrenceburg and Dearborn County. Mm -hmm. So, again, geographically, we have differences
1: in how we um, uh, perceive and how we treat young people. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got a couple follow-ups, but first we have to go to the phone because we have Stan who's been waiting. Stan? Hi,
0: um, I'm... I'm very puzzled, and uh, your your mention of the election cycle is, is apropos. It's so clear
1: that services cost money, and yet they save money in the long term because if, if you can help a child when he's young and not a danger to the community, you, you save the community and that child.
2: So why can't politicians step up to the plate and if
1: necessary,
3: raise taxes. Um, I guess it's rhetorical, but I'll leave it that. <laughs> I think the issue of raising taxes is, is, uh, is a, a key issue there. Um, in uh, 2008, House Bill 1001, uh, which created the current property tax structure, mm-hmm. also took the option uh, away from the counties on an individual basis to negotiate with service providers. All of that money and all of those contracts were centralized um, within the Department of Child Services um, as an executive uh, department of the government. And um, I, 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 will, uh, I will broadcast my bias right here. <laughs> um, as a service provider, uh, the task force is providing services to those young people as long as any other agency in the, in the state has. Um, it was much more to the benefit of the young people and the counties when we could negotiate on an individual basis um, because at that point the county was saying, this is what we need, um, and we could bring that service to the county or not. Um, and when the Department of Child Services, under House Bill 1001, um, took over that function, they created a number of what they call service standards, um, definitions of what services were allowed to be provided and how much they would be, um, how much they would pay for those, um, and uh, the argument about um, saving the taxpayer dollars is a very good one of course we agree with that Um, prevention and early intervention pay off as much as seven dollars in benefits to the dollar spent Um, but again um, the caller makes a good point because that can change every four years depending on who's in the legislature and and the attitude of the governor Mm -hmm. steve
1: do you want to react to that
2: well being a legislature legislator and, and and I want to stress here that our legislators locally have been incredibly uh, good about in my opinion looking after the interests of children and trying to influence legislation that would benefit the children so I want, to, I want to say that to begin with but to legislate is to prioritize and in prioritizing all too often in fact every time in my thirty years of experience when there's a need to cut taxes it can fall inordinately upon children and families, particularly at-risk children and families, as well as the mentally ill, which I'm also the judge who deals with uh, mental health commitments. Uh, Right now, the Department of Child Services has the unenviable task of attempting to reconcile those competing interests of the child uh, and the budget process. But I have this to say. I see these kids every day. These are tough kids. These are smart kids. These are resilient kids. These are capable kids. These are survivors. They deserve our consideration, our support. If that's if it, if the question is one of tax me, then tax me, or prioritize for these kids because they deserve it. There are kids, and it's a hackneyed phrase that it takes a community to raise a child, but it's true. It does take a community. It takes all of us. We need to recognize that and understand that that's our responsibility. Because if we don't care for the weakest among us, then then what are we?
1: All right, Stan. Amen. Thanks a lot. Amen. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Thanks thank for the call, Stan. Eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Wfiu dot org slash noon edition. I want to follow up real quickly um, about the mental health aspect. Um, you mentioned it. Um, I'm. I, I, I'm, un, I'm personally under the impression that a lot of a lot of these kids may have some mental health issues, like if it's bipolar disorder, depression, whatever, that might push them in a direction that they really shouldn't be going, and they they need help. They need some sort of treatment rather than you know rather than being put into into detention. And you know, from your experience, uh, Judge, you know what what percentage, or you know, is, is it many of the kids that, that are facing those issues, or just a few?
2: Many, Many. In, in my opinion.
3: I can say in uh, the early years of 2000, the task force embarked on the first and only statewide survey. We uh, surveyed over 300 young people from 13 of the detention centers and administered uh, standardized uh, paper and pencil mental health and substance abuse inter, uh, protocols. And we found um, that 50 percent of the young people who were um, in detention, at though on those days that we administered those those paper and pencil tests, would meet a criteria for uh, a mental health disorder and or a substance abuse disorder. Mm-hmm. And since that time, um, the Criminal Justice Institute has provided additional funding to create what's called a pilot project for uh, uh, mental health. And there are a number of detention centers that have begun to use a screening tool uh, called the MAISI, M-A-Y-S-I, which is just an initial screen. If the young person drops through the screen, then a, then a more formal assessment is done, and from the assessment, a treatment plan is created. But we have a problem in, um, in numbers and that is we, in Indiana, I I would call it a capacity problem. We really don't have the capacity to adequately deal with all of the young people who have uh, mental health and or substance abuse disorders, and it's also a workforce development issue. We don't have that many real skilled adolescent therapists. And uh, for us at the task force, it's also a uh, evidence based practice or best practice uh, question All, everything that we do at the task force in terms of therapy is uh, is in the natural environment it 's typically called home based therapy um, that is that only covers part of it. We might do to th- uh, t- take advantage of therapeutic opportunities in the youth 's home at the workplace at school, wherever that young person is. There are opportunities to um, help that young person integrate into the systems. We call that multi-systems therapy. Mm -hmm. And, again, it's done on a home base. Um, And having been a therapist in a community mental health setting, uh, uh, we don't have time to go into (laughs) how that works, but let me just say the dropout rate, no-show rate is extremely high. But when we have a, uh, a court order to provide... Uh, those services, those home based services it 's hard for them not to show up because <laughs> we know where they are right. and uh, and uh, our treatment plans are developed um, touching not just the family and the families uh, the family members are are also a big part of that uh, therapeutic process, mm-hmm. but we 'll go wherever we need to go with that young person mm-hmm. in order to
1: assist that therapeutic process. Mm-hmm. Um, You're listening to Noon Edition. This is actually the first of two programs we're going to be doing on justice uh, in Indiana. And I have a feeling this topic is going to come up again next week because I know whenever I've talked to uh, the sheriff or judges who deal in criminal courts, I mean there are so many substance abuse problems. The people who are in our jail, our overcrowded jail there's a very high percentage that have substance abuse issues or mental health issues and so you know it's uh, if you can catch them at the early age of juvenile when they're in the juvenile justice system it might help as they're going getting older so
2: it's a great deal of um, <laughs> Research being done right now with uh, the impact of early drinking and early drug use on future addiction, mm-hmm. and the, the evidence is clear that the earlier that a child drinks or uses uh, controlled substances, it strongly increases uh, the likelihood that they will become addicted in the future. And you can just look at the chart as running from age down, you know eight, nine, 10. If they start when they're very young, they're highly likely. And by highly, I mean 60%, 70% uh, likely to have addiction, addiction issues. And we see that every day. In All right. We're going,
1: to take, we're going to have to take a short break. Um, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about juvenile justice issues with Bill Glick from the Indiana Juvenile Justice Task Force Incorporated and Monroe Circuit, Ju- Circuit Court Judge Steve Galvin. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from The Herald-Times, along with Joe Wren from WFIU and WTIU. Uh, Today, our topic is juvenile justice, and we have in the studio with us Bill Glick from the Indiana Juvenile Justice Task Force, Incorporated, and also Monroe County Circuit, Monroe Circuit Judge Steve Galvin. Uh, If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. WFIU.org slash noon edition is the web address. You can go there to join the conversation as well. Bill, wanted to say something about about the drugs and alcohol effect on kids.
3: Yeah, just one, I think, final point is that – As we uh, heard from Bill Cosby many years ago, all kids are brain damaged. And now we know that through studies of physiology, we actually have brain scans that show uh, that decision-making areas in the the brains of adolescents may be not developed until age 24 in some young people. And when we add drug and alcohol use to that, maybe beginning as early as age 10 or age 8 in some cases, uh, we really don't know what the ultimate impact will be on the young person, but we do know that there are a, a significant physiological changes in the brain as a result. Mm-hmm.
4: I was curious about the uh, juvenile detention facilities. Is that true? There are, there are six in the state?
3: No, I, I really I need to do a little 101, yeah. juvenile justice 101. What you're referring to was probably the juvenile correctional facilities. Correctional facilities. So which maybe that's are,
4: my question is what's the difference between a correctional facility
2: well, excellent question. The correctional facilities through the Department of Corrections are post adjudication. Those are children who are being, for want of a better term, that people understand, sentenced to the Department of Corrections, okay. and so they're being uh, placed in these facilities after the courts determined that this is the service they need. I'm highly questioned that in most cases that is the service they need, um, but that the difference is between that and secure detention is that secure detention is pre-adjudication. When a police officer arrests a young person for drunk driving, they will, in Monroe County, and it's somewhat um, uh, difficult for the police officers because they take them into custody and they have to be transported to Vincennes, to a secure detention facility, and um, they have to wait about two hours. That child, though, would go to that secure detention facility and would be held there, and I have to have a hearing within 48 hours to determine should they remain there. So the difference is secure detention is pre-adjudication. I do want to note that in this county, at any given time, we only average about six children in secure detention. Uh, we try to keep the uh, stay limited because studies show the longer you put a first timer in secure detention, the more likely they are to recidivate. So we try to make the, we try to make the stay short. we try to move them on whether we can return them home, uh, placing them on GPS home monitoring or other, other mechanism uh, to monitor their behavior. We do that we move them right along. Um, for a county of our size, we detain uh, probably a third compared to other counties.
1: Yeah. I, I want to say just uh, – we have a lot of smart listeners out there, but recidivates one of those words that I want to uh, – you're basically saying they're, they're a first-timer, and to recidivate means they'll become a second-timer.
2: A second-timer <laughs> and, and ultimately third. an yeah. adult right. Um, right. Uh, who is convicted of a criminal offense. Um, that's what we're trying to stop. We're
4: talking about first-timers. What, what are some of the signs that maybe parents – can see or, or look for and say, oh, wait a minute, there's something here that maybe we need to look into about their child who may become um, in trouble.
3: Uh, parents are sometimes the last to um, understand what those signs are, and, and we do want them to become aware, but, you know, there's a big factor of denial with a lot of parents, right. and sometimes there's a factor of uh, neglect or abandonment on the part of some parents. Not all, but uh, but... Of course, there are uh, changes in uh, friends. Uh, the young person uh, no longer wants a parent to know who their uh, friends are. There are uh, there are uh, behaviors in school might result in de- in school detention, uh, suspension, or threats of expulsion. Certainly. Those are the indications that behavior may be getting more serious. Um, then there is also uh, where the locus of where is the young person going changing where they go for a recreation, um, changing the times that they go out for recreation not coming back in. We have a very unfortunate situation, for example, with a thirteen year old girl who uh, was recently uh, killed in a motor vehicle accident. It was a Friday night. She was 13 years old. It was 11.30, and apparently she was out in the streets um, running chicken, playing chicken. Um, those kinds of indications, the, the young people not not being home, uh, not obeying curfew, and then there are the in-family or within-the-systems behaviors that may be indicators. Um, and I think one of the ones we always point to is, is um how
1: young people deal with authority all right well put okay eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight uh org slash noon edition is uh, the web address um are there any um initiatives i asked you this before the program and though you uh, had an answer for me initiatives going through the legislature that that would be involved with juvenile justice issues
3: well, as you, uh, think most of the listeners know, a lot of bills have been stalled or will not move this session. But one of the uh, pieces of legislation that we were uh, discussing before is House Bill thirteen sixteen, which does two things. First, it creates the Juvenile Transition Services Fund, which uh, provides funding specific for the Department of Correction Division of Youth Services, as 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 we uh, as it is. Been formed now, um, allowing DYS to or enabling DYS to provide funding um, dedicated to reentry services or what we we call a reentry or aftercare services, and uh, it creates that fund. and also um, allows the judge to uh, levy a, um, a a fee to the parents of that young person. Um, not paying for every day that they'd be in, in detained or incarcerated, but, um, but contributing to the Juvenile Transition Services Fund no more than they would have to contribute if there was a child support order and the paperwork – would be the same as it would be when the judge was reviewing a child support order.
1: Well, let me ask you one about one element of this because uh, you know, the judge has talked about it, you've talked about it, this idea that once a kid, uh, a, a child uh, is in the system that there's – I'm generalizing but I'd say there's all, all likelihood that that could make them worse. The reentry portion of this and what kinds of program reentry programs would be
0: useful
3: well i would like to um to really focus on the reentry programs because the task force happens to be recognized as probably a premier reentry agency um in the country we're currently uh, um the recipients of two grants from the federal government uh through the second chance act one of which is uh we're a prime contractor with the Division of Youth Services, and that provides both mentoring services and home-based therapy services as young people are coming back into their communities. The other Second Chance uh, is the, and that's known as the Second Chance Demonstration Project. The other is Second Chance Mentoring for Juveniles, and that comes under our AIM program, which is Aftercare for the Incarcerated through Mentoring, a program that's been uh, with us at the task force for four years since we brought it over from IUPUI, where it originated. And um, we just several months ago finished a three-year federal grant um, combining um, the AIM services and our therapy services. And uh, the focus of that was um, evaluating that program to to formalize it as what's called an evidence-based practice, which means that there is hard data to support the fact that when you combine those two programs um, in a particular manner, then it will result in a a significant reduction in in recidivism, meaning young people don't go back into the system if you provide the right kind of mentoring and home-based services. Mm -hmm. Now,
1: Now, Judge Galvin, I saw you Tuesday at the local Rotary Club talking with Beth Krauss from Big Brothers Big Sisters about – a new mentoring program that, that you, uh, the Big Brothers hopes to have. But uh, you know, just talk, uh, again, in general about – you talked at, at great length about the importance of having an adult role model in a young person's life.
2: What we found uh, – well, let me say this. Um, in all the years I've done this, I've learned that one thing very affirmatively, the state is a poor substitute for having a role model – an adult role model who is there on a regular basis for a young person. Um, we, in order to address that, uh, the court system and Big Brothers Big Sisters are partnering, excuse me, partnering together. Uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters received a grant uh, in order to uh, train Big Brothers and Big Sisters for some of the kids who we have who are going through as uh, the court system as delinquents. These young people desperately need a role model, and uh, listeners out there, I would strongly urge you to consider being a big brother, big sister with this in mind. Um, Dealing with these young people can be difficult. It can be challenging, but they're great kids. They're wonderful kids, and they need help. So that's my blurb right now. I'm giving a plug right now. (laughs) but I hope that folks will consider that.
3: And I, I similarly want to plug the the AIM program uh, again, and that is that we have uh, mentors uh, out of our Indianapolis office, but they, they go to every uh, juvenile correctional facility in the state. Um, most of those uh, are the ones who visit within the, the uh, facilities are work-study students and interns. Um, in the past, we used uh, AmeriCorps members, but we're currently using um, uh, staff members who are team leaders. Um, and we have established a training program uh, through the AIM Training Institute. We have a juvenile and adult training institute. But on the juvenile level, we've trained about 600 people from, uh, I think, 30 states, including a large proportion of the staff from the Division of Youth Services um in terms of uh the the these young people can be especially difficult to reach and uh you know they're not the uh, they're not the poster kids um and uh it takes a special approach and we want to uh, we want to make sure they have everything in their repertoire the mentors have everything that they can in their repertoire and uh th- Again, using our federal grants, um, we are providing services in each of those correctional facilities. In addition to which, number of youth from Hendricks County and Marion County, and we hope to expand that, will also be a, uh, a part of the program um, where we are providing home-based therapy services.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to Gracia. Gracia.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, First of all, I want to tell Judge Galvin that I've been in his court a number of times, and I really appreciate the way he interacts with um, young people and their families. So that's one thing. But I do have a question. The last time I was there, the, young, the family with whom I, I was serving as kind of a just an advocate and an interpreter, um, I knew that this young man told the judge a lie. I knew that he was lying. And I wasn't sure what to do about it. Um, it's, he's now doing what he told the court he was doing. But at the time, he was not. And I just, I sat there going, what do I do about this? And, so, uh, and it, was a, it was a totally blatant lie. And I sat there going, he is lying. Uh, so, and I wasn't sure what to do about it. Um, but I do know that his mom and his probation officer have been working really closely so i didn 't know whether it was corrected through that or whether there was something I should have done.
2: Gracia. I m- want to note that i can 't talk about a specific case, but like I, I know and, but I would say um, uh, it is very common for me to be lied to uh, <laughs> by, by a young person in my court and um, as I'm going to go back to Judge Talia again, um, I, you know, as she would say, I didn't fall off the turnip truck. Um, you know, right. uh, I, I expect, I I know that the children do that. And, and we, in dealing with them, uh, make the assumption that we have to verify what they okay. tell us. And we do that. And I note that that's done largely by my probation officers, who operate not as adult probation officers, but much more uh, like social workers, and they will follow up, and and if the child says, you know, I was at, I went to my drug and alcohol counseling, you know, three times last week, you can bet that the uh, probation officer will have checked on that.
0: Okay, well, she absolutely, you know, he, he had this attitude that I, he was going to go in and he was going to fool you, and I <laughs> told him before he went in, I said, this is not going to happen.
3: That's common. That's 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 adolescent think. That's teen think. Yeah,
0: yeah. But he, you know, basically, I think he is on the right track now because he must have gotten caught in that lie. You know, because he's now doing what he said he was doing at the time. So I just wondered whether I should have done anything or whether just letting it go was work. It obviously worked itself out.
2: You did the right thing because you're there for support, and that's what they need so desperately.
0: Okay, great. That's
3: right. funny because I, I would that have said great, as, as a, someone who works with those young people, uh, I might disagree respectfully <laughs> with the judge and say, you might have uh, asked to uh, f- uh, tap the prosecutor on the shoulder and, uh, or whoever was, was representing the prosecution, tap that person on the shoulder and say, hmm, I've got a little problem with that. Yeah. Or the, pro- the or, or tap the probation officer on the shoulder. Typically, the probation officer and prosecutor would be in in the courtroom. Either would bring it
4: up. Yeah. Certainly,
3: yeah.
4: Bill, when you were speaking earlier about the aim mentors, anybody can volunteer, right? As long as they go through the training.
3: Well. The, there 's a difference between those those people that we expect to take with us into the facilities and the community mentors um, because we do visit the facilities on a regular basis, and uh, frankly that 's a lot to ask of a community based mentor because mm-hmm. um, the state hasn 't located its juvenile correctional facilities in uh, in readily accessible places um, all throughout the state, for example. Uh, It's very difficult to get to the girls' facility in Madison, and it's very difficult to get to Camp Summit, which is the kind of quasi-boot camp uh, up north in LaPorte County. Uh, But uh, people can volunteer as community-based mentors, which we'd expect – couple of meetings while
1: the young person was in the facility and then working with the young person outside the facility. All right. Our phone number is again, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. 811 877 285 9348 You can go to the web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have less than 10 minutes to go, and we have um, lots of stuff we can still talk about. I, I wanted to ask uh, about um, two things, really. Uh, bullying, for one. Um, what was the second thing I was going to ask you about. Uh, truancy. As another one, you know, both sort of school-based kinds of things that, that happen. You know, how, how significant are those problems, and how much do they lead to, you know, people showing up in the delinquency corridor in the system?
3: Uh, first, a uh, note about bullying. You did ask about what was going on in the legislature. Unfortunately, the bullying uh, prevention legislation that was uh, introduced by uh, Senator Tom Weiss um, and uh, worked on by probably a dozen community-based um, uh, agencies from throughout the state. Unfortunately, that um, did not pass uh, this this go-around. Um, uh, it was carefully crafted by the agencies that were involved and by t- uh, Senator Weiss's staff, uh, but it ran into some problems around um, government intrusion and uh, First Amendment speculation um, in regards to Bullying that was web-based or internet-based bullying, which is a significant problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we just this week had a Children Our Best Investment Conference. Where we bring young people and uh, and folks, adults from throughout the state down to Indianapolis. We we talked to them about legislation, how the real truth about how a bill becomes a law, and then visit the state house. And of course, bullying was an issue that uh, the young people. Uh, had on their agenda, and um, they're uh, quite concerned, young people that we've talked to across the state, quite concerned about uh, bullying both within the school, um, what happens to the victims, what happens to the perpetrators, and Internet-based bullying, um, which is something that most adults don't really have – give enough credibility to these days. It's very –
1: it's a very serious issue. Mm-hmm. Judge, is this something that shows up in your court?
2: I do see um, quite a bit, uh, usually in the form of uh, batteries mm-hmm. that occur. Uh, by the time that I see the cases, usually there's been an established pattern within the school, and the school has referenced it to the police, and it's usually more than one incident. Mm-hmm. I do want to say you brought up truancy, mm-hmm. and I'd like to address that yes. before we we go off the air. When I look at a a rap sheet for a juvenile offender, at the top of the the list of offenses that they've created or that they've engaged in, always it's the same thing, truancy. That is, um, to me, the greatest predictor of future delinquent behavior and something that I think parents should watch out for. I know the school is attuned to it. Three years ago, we began a truancy court to address middle school uh, truancy, and the goal was to uh, try to reduce recidivism uh, by treating this in some sense like the drug court, and I think many of the listeners are familiar with the drug court. Uh, Each Thursday morning at 7.30, I have uh, between 10 and 12 uh, young people who have had a problem with chronic truancy in my courtroom, along with their parents. We review their Uh, attendance, and we also review their work, their homework, and we check to see if they've been a discipline problem. Um, This was an experiment that we engaged in, and uh, what we found is that we're doing very well in ensuring that they attend class every day. Um, We're doing relatively well at ensuring that they do all their homework and they do their assignments. We feel like that it's been a success. I do note, though, that one of the things that we found was when the court's supervision ended for a certain number of the young people, they went back to uh, their truant ways. Um, What we also found uh, was a great many mental health problems that we had not expected. And it gives us an opportunity to address those mental health problems. So this truancy court's been an eye-opener, and I I would hope that folks in the community uh, support efforts to reduce truancy because for the children I see, it is crucial in trying to ensure that they don't end up in the Monroe County Jail when they're adults and that they have a future. well
3: I know I'm, i think i 'm sorry to jump in, but yeah. parent participation and parent engagement is a key there. You asked before about what some of the signals mm-hmm. were, and I think we neglected to say truancy, but um, parents need to become fully engaged in that process, and often we find that there might be drug use or a history of mental illness or other family problems that lead the parent to disengage and not pay attention to the young person not going to school.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to mention, I, truancy court's on our list of stories to do for the uh, Herald Times. Oh, so we'll be, excellent. All Thank right. you. Um, in one minute, Bill, could you sort of give me a, a very quick view? I mentioned the word gangs before we went on the air, and, and you mm-hmm. said there's some new language being used. But in like one minute or less, can you sort of tell me where, what's going on with that?
3: Yeah, Bob, I think gangs have evolved as a lot of other social groups have. Um, we, we tend to want call the, uh, what used to be called gang security threat groups because there are so many different classifications or sub classifications. What we used to call gangs, and one of the things we found is that there are more and more splinter groups that we've, uh, picked up the cl- the, uh, the language from the young people themselves to call them cliques. For example, in Marion County, we've just looked at a, gang survey or a security threat group survey, which indicates there are over 300 clicks wow. within Marion County, Indianapolis.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. We're, uh, we do have one quick message. Since I no longer drive, I could only volunteer to mentor children in community-based mentoring. How would I do that? Is there, is there a way to mentor children if someone doesn't have a vehicle? Judge,
2: I would strongly urge you to speak to Big Brothers Big Sisters because it may well be that they have a child who is uh, near to you, mm-hmm. that they have uh, that they can make uh, arrangements. Because uh, I think your interest is the number one thing that's most important. That's right. great,
1: and we are out of time. It was uh, great. I, it went very fast today. I want to thank uh, Bill Glick from the Indiana Juvenile Justice Task Force and Monroe County Circuit Judge Steve Galvin for. Um, Joe Wren, sitting in for Mary Catherine today, producer Dan Goldblatt, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg.
0: Thanks for listening.